0: word our passage this morning as we continue in our series on 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 and we'll read through chapter 2 verse 5 Paul is writing to a church he helped establish where he uh, sowed the seed of the gospel and ministered among them a church that is racked with division and competition and pride and Paul wants to bring back the hope of the gospel. As Paul continues his encouragement and admonition to them, let us follow along and hear what God has for us. May God bless the reading of his word to us, his people. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. you may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, some of us are ready and rearing to go to hear your word. Some of us may be distracted or downcast. Lord, we come to you not dependent on our circumstances nor our feelings. We come to you in the hope that your word has the power of life and truth within it. And so, Lord, would you by your spirit meet us this morning. Bless us through your word, convict and comfort and direct and bless us, that we would be your people to your glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, as we continued the series, we looked at the central drive of Paul's letter, verse 10, when he called out the divisions among them calling the Corinthians to agreement. He pointed out how he didn't preach in the manner most likely to feed into their preferences with eloquence and the language of the philosophers and debaters of the day, but he did so because he didn't want to distract from the power of the cross. Now Paul is going to elaborate on the word or the message and the power of the cross so that the Corinthians... And their confidence would be rightly placed. So that, as verse 31 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul wants to help them boast in the Lord. But in order for them to do that, Paul is going to have to confront their pride. That has led them to such boasting. And so in this passage, he seeks to humble them, not because his intention is to make them feel bad about themselves, to humiliate them, or to shame them, but because to leave them where they are at, spiritually at this moment, doing what they're doing, saying what they're saying, is to put them at risk of finding comfort in the good news of the gospel according to their cultural values rather than to see them conformed to Christ. To allow them to continue doing so would be to risk them missing out on the beauty and the power and the wonder of the good news. Consider the work of a sculptor. Maybe you might think of Michelangelo and the great David that many travel from around the world to see. A sculptor such as Michelangelo might come to a block of marble and they might envision the potential of a statue made from that marble. And you might even hear uh, sculptors and artists say, you know, this piece of, of wood or, or this piece of marble, it spoke to me. and I could just see the, the sculpture within it. But the artist, he or she just won't leave that block of marble and say, well, I see the sculpture within there and have everyone come to the museum to look at the block of marble and say, aha, I see it too. No, nor will they simply say, well, the, the sculpture inside is so uh, consistent with that block of marble that all I need to do is to just hammer it with the largest hammer I can and the result will be the sculpture coming forth. Now the artist takes up hammer and chisel, for they must cut away and shear away and break away that which conceals what they intend to reveal, to remove that gets in the way of the vision of the beauty of the sculpture that they intend. Paul is lovingly, if nonetheless, using hammer and chisel to remove the grounds of pride that lead the Corinthians to boasting in anything but the Lord, so that rather than boasting in themselves, rather than boasting to others of themselves, that boasting can be reformed and reshaped and transformed into worship. That the person who boasts would boast in the Lord. How does Paul go about that? He seeks to remove their grounds of boasting. And he does it uh, kind of in, in answering three questions for them or posing three questions to them. He first of all asks, Who are you boasting to? He then asks, Who are you to boast? And then he poses the question, Were you saved by boasting? Who are you boasting to? Who are you to boast were you saved by boasting? This question, the first question, who are you boasting to, is implicit as Paul confronts the fact that the Corinthians are trying to appeal to the prevailing Jewish culture for those that are Jewish and the prevailing Gentile culture of those that are Gentiles as the audience for their boasting. You, you don't go to someone who doesn't like jazz music and boasts to them of how good you are at classical music if they don't value classical music. You go to boast to someone according to the values that they value or else your boasting is empty. And Paul wants to say, are, are these the people? The Jews and the Gentiles? Are these categories of people the ones that you want to shape your sense of worth and value before? Is the admiration of the people according to their standards and expectations something you should be seeking? Consider the first verse of our passage, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. First of all, he says, let's be honest. Apart from Christ, the Jews and the Greeks who you are seeking to impress are perishing. Those who are rejecting this message of the cross, who view it as folly, they are perishing and you who have seen this as the power and wisdom of God, you are being saved. Should your sense of worth and value and importance be according to those whose very lives, their very souls, are perishing. He invites the Corinthians to consider how the same word of the cross is received differently according to one's spiritual state. To the perishing Jew and Gentile, it is foolishness and weakness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because God's sovereign plan is not to uphold human wisdom, God's plan is not to conform to man's standards to their expectations but to blow them up to surpass them to tear them down so that they would instead look to him verse 19 says I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart was God against wisdom Is God against signs or powers? No. But God is opposed to being judged by the standards of the wisdom of the world and the ways of the world as the demonstration that He is who He says He is and that the message of the cross is indeed the hope of the gospel. Paul reminds him that the preaching of the gospel has not been according to the cultural expectations of the Jews or the Greeks. The Jews, he says, they demand signs. Think of the Old Testament history of God's people who over and over again God would show kindness to, God would deliver from their enemies, God would feed in the wilderness. And then what would they say? Well, God doesn't love us. God doesn't care for us. God's brought us out here to die. God's forgotten us. Deliver us from the bad guys. Feed us from heaven. Make water come from the rock. They demanded signs that God would prove himself them even think of Jesus' ministry And though Jesus did many signs and miracles that when he was among those who had no faith he would not perform them because it would only conform to their desire not to be confirmed in what they were hearing but to have their expectations met then we think of the Greeks or the Gentiles who loved wisdom and debate and argumentation, who loved eloquence of speech, who, when talked about in Paul's visit to Rome and the Areopagus, are described as those who just like to sit together all day and argue about things. This isn't just about Jews or Greeks. These are the primary worldviews of the culture in which the Corinthians lived, the assumptions of the day, the Jews and the Greeks are a shorthand for all of man's cultural, religious, and philosophical expectations. So we might say to ourselves, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, and Americans demand results. What is God going to get me? Is it going to be according to my timetable? Is it going to help me get ahead? Is it going to make my life more efficient and fulfill my desires and demands for myself? How does Jesus help me achieve my goals for myself to reach health, happiness, security, and prosperity? Should we be trying to show results, wisdom, or power to the culture so that they will be impressed by us? Paul says, no. We preach Christ crucified. Paul says, it's not just a reaction. This isn't about repudiating the culture. It's not about us against the world. But it's against the reality that according to man's wisdom and man's standards, we consider what God has done to be a stumbling block, to be foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block or scandal is probably a better translation because that's the word in Greek and we we understand that. And foolishness. Why? Cross and crucified. If you've grown up around the church, if you've been a Christian a long time, or even if you just lived in Western culture, you're fairly comfortable with those words. What about Noose. What about guillotine? What about electric chair? What about executed? What about drawn and quartered? What about lynched? The way those words strike our ears are the ways that the word cross and crucified, repeated in this passage, struck the ears of Jews and Gentiles. Remember what we read from Galatians, what the Old Testament said, cursed is anyone that is hanged from a tree. And for the Romans... In Corinth, to crucify one was to make a public example of them, to publicly execute them in a manner reserved for slaves and rebels, as a warning to others who would dare cross the power of Rome, an excruciating, torturous death, where the body suffering pain was put on full public nude and humiliating display. The resurrection that is described about Jesus is unique in its nature and what it discusses. The resurrection of Jesus is unique, but the idea of God's coming to life from death was not a new thing. There were cycles of gods that would die and rise. There were gods who would go into great glorious battles against evil and fight and then die and then rise again to fight the evil. The idea of a God coming back to life was not fully new. But the idea of God dying the death of a slave willingly that was scandalous. That was foolishness. That's not a God. That's a slave. That's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a false God. Why would we try to build ourselves up and boast to those who are perishing Because to those that God has not called, the core of our gospel will be folly. And to boast per their standards is to affirm the means by which they couldn't in themselves recognize Christ. It asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Plato and Aristotle had conceptions of God. They had knowledge and presuppositions, but they did not know God. And the scribes of the Jews were among those who, despite Jesus' wisdom, who, despite Jesus' manifestation of power and signs in God, were the quickest to reject him and accuse him and seek to destroy him. It doesn't mean we stop preaching or talking about Jesus, the gospel to others, because by God's Spirit, those who he calls will respond. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, verse 24 tells us, the point is not that the Jews and Greeks are beyond the power of God to salvation But it is that they are beyond the power in and of themselves according to their expectations and what they value. They need God to work in them. We don't boast to them because why would we expect their approval? Because their assumptions, their grounds of belief is not what Jesus came to affirm, but Jesus rather came to show that what is foolish in the eyes of man is wiser than any wisdom that they have. That God would die for rebels and saints like us. That which seems weak, a man beaten, a man hung from a cross, contained the power to overcome sin, death, and evil. Why do we look for the world's approval according to the world's standards when the world, according to those standards and expectations, did not receive Christ but put him to death and rejected him? Why would we boast to them instead of boasting in Christ? Paul then asks a second question, not just who are you boasting to, but who are you to boast? Verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Consider when God, through the proclamation of the gospel, by his Spirit, called you to himself. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. By man's standards, In terms of class, in terms of wealth, in terms of influence, and even in terms of the wisdom that so many of them valued when they went to the marketplace to hear other debaters, they themselves were lacking. In fact, as verse 27 says, they are among the foolish and the weak. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's not particularly comforting news to hear. To say you have been saved because you were weak. You were saved because you were foolish. It confronts the fact that God does not save us because of anything inherently meritorious or worthwhile in and of ourselves. So why does God choose the foolish and the weak? Because God has chosen to glorify himself in such as those. He is tearing down the idols, the philosophies, the structures of prestige and wealth that we so often look to instead of turning to him. So that none of us who come into the presence of God will think That we can say, look at my wealth, look at my business, look at my perfect kids, look at my fit body, look at how big my house is, look how many friends I have on social media. God chooses the weak and the foolish to tell the rest of the world, this is not what I seek, your wealth and power. What I seek is myself glorified in you. This is the work of God's kindness Because even if we were powerful, even if we were righteous, that wouldn't be grounds to boast before God. Because God is God. Who of us would take our bank accounts and boast in front of Warren Buffett? Who of us would boast of our singing in front of Pavarotti? Or show Selena Gomez how many followers we have on social media? Yet, this is our sinful tendency to go before God and think that we somehow deserve the salvation He has offered us in Christ. We often talk about this in in terms of self righteousness. Look at my good deeds. Look at my obedience. God, you, you must love me because of how much I've given to the church or how many hours I spend in Bible study. Look how good I am at understanding theology. Look how I care for the poor. Look how much I march on behalf of the unborn. We rightly understand that these are supposed to be reflections of receiving God's grace, not a means to earning God's grace, but it's not just self-righteousness and the law that we do this with. We do it with our celebrity. We do it with our influence. We do it with our wealth. That it's not just our false righteousness, it's our false standing, it's our false importance that we often try to offer God. So God graciously chooses the weak, the foolish, the uncool, the not culturally savvy, so that it is clear that this is not the grounds of his work in our lives, that we have not persuaded God or attracted God to save us. It is God's grace. But even as God is tearing down in us what we might boast in, so that he receives the glory... That doesn't mean he merely tears us down. Rather, he builds us back up. He glorifies us. Not in the things that we might boast in according to the world's standards, but according to the gifts he gives us in Christ. Verse 30. Well, verse 40, 29 says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then verse 30 says, And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Christ, we receive wisdom from God. In Christ, righteousness. In Christ, sanctification. In Christ, redemption. So that it would be a fair reading of this passage to not say that it is saying this is what Christ is, but this is what we are in Christ, that we are wisdom from God in Christ, that we are righteousness in Christ, that we are sanctification in Christ, and we are redemption because what Christ has accomplished, he gives to us. He does it so that we have something to shout about, so that we have something to plaster on every wall in Corinth. But it isn't us, it's what God has done in us. Who are we to boast in ourselves except in what the Lord has done in us? And lastly, Paul asks the implicit question Were you saved by boasting? Are these the people that you want to justify yourselves to in your boasting? Who are you to boast, really? And lastly, were you saved by boasting? Paul has challenged their desire to boast in ways that the pervading culture and values of the day would champion. He has reminded them that their salvation is not reason to boast because it was not anything in them that caused God to save them, but what God might do through them for his glory. For their good. And now he reminds them of how they received that good news, that gospel, how Paul preached among them. Did God use displays of wisdom and powerful signs and miracles to bring them to saving knowledge? Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, it was not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in the plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you were to go back and read Acts chapter 18 about Paul's time in Corinth, that Paul first goes to the synagogue and he seeks to proclaim to them the truth of the gospel in Christ and they will not hear him over and over again such that he has to give voice to his frustration and say, fine, I am done with you at the synagogue. I'm going to give myself over to the preaching to the Gentiles in Corinth. Even as that's happening, God gives him a vision because he's meeting with such resistance that God speaks through the Spirit to him in a vision saying that he is to continue. That though there is much opposition, that there might even be reason to fear for his life, God has people for him in that city and God will preserve him. And so when the Jews seek to bring him to trial and have him punished for the preaching of the gospel, The Gentile who has no interest in the gospel is unwilling to persecute him. And yet, Sosthenes, who you will recall is his co-author at the beginning of the letter, is taken and beaten. They're so angry, they're so upset that they can't do anything about Paul, but at least they can make Sosthenes suffer for this outrage. The going forth of the gospel was not in profound miracles, was not in his eloquent speech, but it was in Paul, depending on the testimony of the Spirit and the power of God, not in miraculous signs, but in God keeping his word to Paul. It's interesting, we know that the Jews seek signs. Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus. And what happens in Ephesus some of you who were in the Sunday school read the section from Ephesus, so profound were the miracles and signs and wonders that Paul was doing that even handkerchiefs and napkins touched by Paul were bringing about healing. The point is not that Paul didn't have eloquent speech; he debated the chief philosophers in the Areopagus It's not that God couldn't work signs and powers through him; there are profound hearing uh, healings and miracles. Through Paul, that he's probably performing even as he writes this letter. But those were not the things that God used to convert these men and women. It was a fearful, trembling, weak man preaching only the fact that their Savior, their Messiah, died on the cross for their sins that God used to save them. If those who looked for wisdom and signs from God in his wisdom and power could save through the proclamation of a crucified Savior, then who can he not save through us doing the same? When we're tempted to say, What good news do we have? What powerful words? What good apologetic arguments? What great success in my life do I have to show my neighbor? My house is a mess. I'm on the verge with all of the financial hardships right now. I fall into sin. I get tongue-tied when I talk about Bible verses and my memory is not that good. And we might say, what do we have in us to compel others to convince others of the gospel? The very same thing that Paul had. The power of the spirit who is the one that saves men and women who wanted signs, who wanted wonders, and what they got was Christ crucified. God doesn't need us to show how good our theology is, how happy our families are, how our finances have been blessed, how we are able to have influence in our governmental systems. God doesn't need the world to be impressed by us, but merely calls us like Paul to be used of him to demonstrate his foolishness which surpasses the wisdom of man. The foolishness of a dying savior, which is the power to save all mankind. I mentioned Michelangelo at the beginning of the sermon. Michelangelo is a famed sculptor, not only for the David, but the Pieta and other works of art. He was also an architect who built the tallest dome, designed the tallest dome that the world Has seen, and there are other buildings that he helped build. Oh, and besides, he painted the Sistine Chapel. You know what those that go to Rome do? They don't go around looking at blocks of marble, they don't go around looking at David and saying, I wish this was still a block of marble. They don't go to basilicas and say, I wish these were still bits of lumber and mud. They don't go into the Sistine Chapel and say, I wish these were still eggs and seashells and mud. They go in and they say, Wow, Michelangelo was an artist, he was a genius. He was so skilled and gifted that he took the marble and made it into this. That he took the pigments and the paints and he gave us this. That his imagination was able to make things that the world had never seen in buildings. Brothers and sisters, if we don't go around delighting in blocks of marble and timber on the side of the road, then why would we want the world to delight in us? instead of what God has made of us. And to those that want to boast, but having been exposed for having no reason to boast, are transformed into those who are able to worship. Brothers and sisters, let us that boast, boast in the Lord, because though foolish and weak in the eyes of men, the foolishness of God is wiser, the weakness of God is stronger. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we come before you and pray, Lord, that we would not be so consumed with what we have or what we have done or what others think of us, but that we would reflect on what you have done, how you called us to yourselves and expect that you are able to use us wherever our calling, where, whatever capital we have, whatever skills we have or don't have, to proclaim that the power to save is not in us, but it's in the truth of Christ crucified for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.